Listening to Climate Champions, a podcast from the Architects Journal. I'm Hattie Hartman, Sustainability Editor at the Architects Journal. And I'm Hattie's co-host, George Morgan, Director of 1.5 Architecture. Founding ACAN has taught me skills beyond traditional architecture, like organising, facilitation, relationship management, consensus decision making, the kind of life skills that maybe you don't get when you're studying technical architecture or creative design at, at art schools, for example. But I think that and public practice have ultimately changed the trajectory of my career. Today, we're speaking to two architects who are driving sustainability and retrofit through the public sector. Lauren Shovels at Westminster City Council and Steve Westcott at Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Lauren and Steve are both Associates of Public Practice, a social enterprise that places built environment professionals in local authorities. First up is Lauren, Lead Retrofit Innovation and Delivery Officer at Westminster. Lauren was one of the co-founders of ACAN, the Architects Climate Action Network, back in 2019. Prior to joining public practice, Lauren worked at Studio Bark, at May on the recent Sterling Prize-winning John Morden Center in Blackheath, and at Field and Clegg Bradley Studios. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. You've recently started a new role as Lead Retrofit Officer at Westminster. What does this entail? So my new role at Westminster is a completely new position uh, that sits within the design, conservation and sustainability team within planning. It's been established to drive forward retrofit by supporting the work of the Westminster Retrofit Task Force and the live work streams within that. The role itself has actually been funded by Innovate UK funding as part of its research and innovation arm. That actually means that I'm part of a Fast Followers programme, which is a cohort of about 21 net zero officers situated in local authorities across the UK and with a really good geographical spread as well. I mean, there are, there are various net zero projects from within that cohort um, and a small group of us are dedicated to retrofitting specifically. By having this role at Westminster City Council, it, it allows me to dedicate 100% of my, my time to progressing these five live work streams. So we have an archetype approach and an archetype procurement club. We also have pilot projects and case studies, planning policy and processes, communication and guidance, and also collaborative stewardship. So what does the archetype approach entail? So you look at a typical kind of building that exists in the borough and see what you would do to it? Yeah, exactly. So part of that work stream is reviewing Westminster's building stock and identifying typical archetypes in terms of buildings. There's also a secondary layer to that, which is actually looking at ownership archetypes as well, you know, freehold, leasehold, rented, owner-occupied, etc. Okay, so that you might do a different 
kind of retrofit to say some social housing that's owned by the housing association compared to what would happen in privately owned say terraced housing yeah exactly each situation is different and each building owner will have a different approach or a different incentive to wanting to do retrofit and i guess obviously different retrofit interventions cost different amounts of money and and financing those has to be a factor Westminster City Council pledged to become net zero as an organisation by 2030 and then the city as a whole by 2040 as part of the great rush of councils declaring a climate emergency in 2019. This always seemed a slightly odd pledge to me because councils don't have much influence over, over things like how clean the electricity grid is, for example. How seriously should we take these pledges from councils? I think... To kind of bounce off that question, I think Westminster City Council is taking its own pledge quite seriously. You know, it has a dedicated climate team that that helps deliver on its climate action plan. So the council is kind of putting its money where its mouth is with regards to, you know, resourcing officer time around the council emergency. We know that we won't be able to to reach our net zero target without a consolidated borough-wide approach to retrofit. And I think this means taking the objectives from the five work streams I mentioned incredibly seriously and actually enacting delivery through those. That's encouraging. Yeah, that is encouraging. The the, the council is taking it, yeah, it's taking it seriously. Yeah, so one of the things you mentioned is looking at planning policies that favour retrofit of existing buildings over demolition and making refurbishment almost the default option, as well as introducing carbon budgets. We recently had a column by Councillor Jeff Barakloff about this in the AJ. Can you talk through this in a little more detail? I think around planning policy, there's a lot of kind of carrot and stick, whether you're incentivizing or demanding that it's done through through current policy. Um, and I was going to reference, actually, Councillor Barakloff's opinion piece in, in the AJ, because, you know, that's looking at how Westminster will put a retrofit first approach forward in in its planning policy and obviously like this isn't live policy this is being developed but Hattie you've already correctly picked out the fact that we need to put carbon budgets on the table the council plans to put retrofit first by introducing carbon budgets and essentially meaning that any new buildings need to meet targets for tons of co2 emitted per square meter And then also that's complemented by a a refurbishment first approach, encouraging building owners to refurbish their buildings as, as a default option. And I think there will likely need to be an adequate education piece around this. I think it's like 50% of Londoners don't know what retrofit is or what it actually means, which I think is really fascinating. And maybe retrofit isn't quite the word that we need to use. Also developments are gonna have to demonstrate why retrofit isn't viable or practical. It's a retrofit first, not a retrofit only approach. Things have to be taken on a case by case basis. If the structure is unfit to be repurposed or too costly to strengthen it, that's when you would look at partial demolition or other alternative options. Westminster has a lot of residential properties and domestic retrofit is a risky business with so many things that can go wrong especially to do with moisture, mold. And for publicly funded energy efficiency works, the PAS 2035 methodology tries to ensure that things are done to a reasonable standard. But 
homeowners are often faced with really dodgy EPC recommendations and which with high risk measures. What do you see as the council's role here? There's so much scope for bad retrofitting. And I guess one of the biggest challenges with the retrofit task force is actually about how to de-risk retrofit. Any schemes which use central government funding have to adhere to the funding conditions, which include having a dedicated retrofit coordinator or, you know, having past 2035 accredited contractors, as you've already mentioned. We have lots of how-to guides on our websites, which help homeowners decide the most effective course of action. And I guess this could be supplemented by a pattern book, which goes back to the archetype approach that I was first discussing. During the summer of, of 2022, we actually opened a, a retrofit show home on one of our council properties, which was a lower ground floor flat and a Victorian terrace. Um, and we received, you know, over 250 visitors that came and had a look round. We'd installed secondary glazing, internal wall insulation and an air source heat pump. Have you got a general take about the balance between fabric first measures and heat pumpification? Because there's the, 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 the sort of emphasis around retrofit historically has been about insulation, air tightness, improving the, the, the fabric performance. But that's really hard. And then, yeah, there's sort of heat pumps as the grids decarbonising, supplying heat with low carbon sources has, I don't know. Yeah, the, the sort of balance seems to be changing with like the ACB new um, retrofit level one standard. Do, do, you, do you have a general take about these two ways of going about it? I think it's both. I think we need to we need to do both. If we don't insulate our homes properly, the the energy that we're supplying them isn't being used effectively. And even if that is coming from renewable sources such as PV or air source heat pump, like we still need to be conscious of of the resources that we have and and what we're using and how we're and how we're heating our homes. At an urban scale, one of the main topics in sustainable urbanism is increasing density to reduce the climate impact to cars, particularly in North America. Uh, If we look at the carbon emissions of a building or site without considering what happens if those residents would end up living somewhere car dependent instead, it could be kind of a bit counterproductive overall. So how do we get the boundaries right when we're looking at a specific site, particularly a sort of urban setting like Westminster? There's kind of a bigger question here about where we draw the line around environmental design. I come at it with an architectural background and you're specifically thinking about the carbon emissions that that buildings are producing. But actually, we should focus on a more holistic environmental approach, whether the, the building or the scheme is encouraging things like active transport or public transport use. Westminster Council actually declared an ecological emergency this September just gone. And looking at things like biodiversity, net gain and urban greening factors, which should also be taken into account. When you're working with planning policy, in terms of the council's role in in dealing with the climate emergency in general, how much power can they have to to make the sort of changes that that are needed? That's a really good question, because actually currently retrofit doesn't exactly fit into the the traditional planning policy process, I guess. Mm you you know you can't mandate that retrofit is done because it's not part of the traditional planning process so i think we need to have a a bit of a rethink about how we use our guidance and and ultimately our policy to ensure that we can have a retrofit first approach
Shifting gears a little bit now, I wanted to ask you about your own path. So you came to Westminster under the public practice scheme. I'm a huge fan of public practice, and I was really delighted that co-founder Pooja Agrawal won the AJ100 contribution to the profession last year. So tell us about your experience with public practice and why you decided to, to do this and exactly what it entailed. I think I was particularly in- intrigued around the, the concept of public practice and, and how they were taking creative professionals from the private sector and placing them within public sector roles. Hats off to, to Pooja and the team. I think what the work that they're doing is absolutely incredible and, and very exciting. Moving to the public sector has allowed me to marry a lot of different passions of mine. Originally, I was placed as a place shaping officer in Westminster. So I joined the council back in April 2022 within that that public practice cohort. And I was uh, looking mostly at kind of city planning and our place shaping agenda around that. But it also focused on things that I hadn't really considered to be placemaking. Like, I was also involved in managing a small grants programme called Greening Westminster that focused on kind of biological and, and greening enhancements across the city. So I think it certainly opened a lot of doors for me into, to, into avenues that I didn't quite expect myself to be taking. So how does the public practice cohort work? How much support do you get? How much interaction do you have with other people in your cohort? I think it's set up really well, actually. It's a year-long placement that has 90% of your time dedicated to to the live job, the, the work that you're doing within the borough. And then every second Friday, so 10% of your time, is dedicated to learning and development days and I personally found that an incredibly supportive environment. It's it's a place to discuss what's going on with your current role, any barriers or any challenges that you're facing. Also taking learnings from other cohort members. The programme's gone national now and I really applaud them for expanding the programme beyond beyond London. I think it's it's really fantastic. So these these alternate Fridays you would meet up in person when it was in London or Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's actually mm. that's a really good point. We'd often take it as kind of a, a rotating seat to host the different L and D days and we'd invite different speakers to, to kind of host a morning session. Often the afternoon session was paired with either a site visit or or a walk around. It was a very supportive environment where I feel I learned a lot from, from my peers. A project that you worked on at May, the John Morden Centre, has just won the Sterling Prize. And I understand that you were uh, working on the project during stages four and five, which is a time when a lot of technical issues can crop up and risk kind of ugly results. So what was your role in the project? I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to work on this project. Hats off to the, the team under Alex Ely, who had developed the project up to stages three. It was a really strong kind of technical design package that I inherited. The structure itself is made out of CLT, so a lot of that had to be prefabricated. I've always enjoyed delivering projects on site. It's kind of the best part of doing a building because you're actually getting to to do the doing, which is really fun. The John Morden Centre has a CLT structure. So that's obviously, as you explained, a decision that was made before you joined the team. But do you know the thinking behind using CLT rather than a straight timber frame? 
Yeah, I think the the decision was made because it allowed for for greater kind of structural opportunities and spans. The CLT works on lots of different levels, actually. The red brick of the envelope is a nod to the architectural setting within Morden College, where the original almshouse was envisaged by Christopher Wren. And by using the CLT construction, it allowed us to form those geometric forms the chimney, which I think would have been quite difficult to have achieved in a timber frame structure. I guess also the CLT, something that's a really nice element about it, is it actually doubles up as the internal wall lining, which provides a strong architectural offer to the people inside. Before you were at May, you were at Studio Bark, so one of the most hardcore sustainable practices. What were some of the projects that you worked on there? I appreciate you saying that. They are hardcore. <laughs> I, I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to work at Studio Bark. I met some of the, the Studio Barkers whilst we were founding ACAN. And I think it's fair to say, you know, like I really found my people at that studio. They're doing really amazing work. Something that we did at Studio Bark was the No Building As Usual project, which was where we took 12 students and ran a kind of a live build programme across the summer of 2021 I think it was now and we were building um, a residential property for a private client but actually being on site and being there with the students and getting them to construct a building from scratch with their hands is quite a transformative way of teaching architecture and I think it's something that you don't get through desk learning you know you actually have to be out there to understand how things go together. So before we wrap up, I have one last question. Several A-canners have now moved away from straight architectural roles, like you, you know, joining the Westminster City Council. So where do you feel you have the most agency? I think given that I haven't yet gone back to traditional architecture, it's, it's maybe obvious that I think I have more agency in, in roles that I'm doing right now. Founding ACAN has taught me skills beyond traditional architecture, like organising, facilitation, relationship management, consensus decision making, the kind of life skills that maybe you don't get when you're studying technical architecture or creative design at, at art schools, for example. But I think that and public practice, in, in my case, have ultimately changed the trajectory of my career. And I feel greater agency in the work that I'm doing now regarding retrofit at Westminster City Council than perhaps I, I had felt in private residential houses. The impact that a role like Lead Retrofit Innovation and Delivery Officer can have on societal change is, is enormous. It's allowed me to marry together the best parts of my, my ACAN work and kind of learnings, community and stakeholder engagement with architectural technical knowledge. My transition personally has been really formative and I feel incredibly lucky that I've picked up different skills at every kind of stage of, of my career and ultimately I feel very grateful that I've landed where I have at Westminster in this new retrofitting role. Well thank you, thank you very very much. Our second guest today is Steve Westcott, a recent public practice associate who after almost 20 years working in private practice has joined Greater Manchester Combined Authority as a low-carbon program manager, focusing on decarbonizing the city's non-domestic public estate. So Steve, we've just been speaking to Lauren Shevels about how she moved from architecture and ACAN to the city of Westminster through the public practice scheme. 
How did you get involved? I've always been kind of interested in the idea of, of moving to the kind of the public sector, and I've I've been aware of public practice for some time. So I was kind of keeping a keen eye on them. They opened up their program not too long ago to support the northern areas of the UK. Now they've increased that further up to kind of complete you know completely around the UK. So I, it was a it was kind of a perfect opportunity for me to kind of to to go for it as as I'm based up up north. It was an you know an opportunity that I couldn't say no to. So I met with public practice and I went through the kind of the interview process there. It was quite a robust process that we went through, and then you know introduced to to the GMCA. I met with members at the GMCA, had some really you know, great conversations, went through an interview process with them, and here I am today. So what exactly is your role at the GMCA? So I'm program manager at the GMCA. I've been in post for six months now. My, my main focus really is supporting the management of what we call the PSDS grant funding. So it's the Public Sector Decarbonisation Scheme. It's a funding pot that's uh, managed by Salix on behalf of DESNES, which is the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. And we've had quite a healthy amount of funding come through. We're at a point now where we've got circa £90 million of, of grant funding that we're managing to deliver our public estate decarbonisation. And recently we've just just, uh, applied for further funding to take us up to that circa £100 million mark. So quite a lot of funding that's actually kind of being managed at the moment. As I say, my role is is ensuring the kind of deliverability of that. Um, I'm also involved in supporting other programmes in in the GMCA. Quite recently, Andy Burnham launched a a school solar programme, which is a kind of collective purchase type programme for schools coming together, creating that, I suppose, in terms of that kind of community kind of purchase, economies of scale type approach. So it sounds like this puts you in much more of a project management role, managing funding bids, tracking decarbonisation measures and the like, than in private practice. And it must require a slightly different skill set. How do you find that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. In all honesty, a lot of my work was very much kind of project management um, whilst I was in private practice. For a number of years, I've been working on a, on a big scheme in Westminster. And in, in, in a lot of ways, that, that kind of fueled my desire to kind of move to, the, to the, the public sector. So a lot of my skills have been transferable. Obviously, there's, there's new skills which I've had to kind of learn and adapt. And it has been a, a, a kind of steep learning curve. Public practice have helped with that and they've supported with that, which has been fantastic. There's a big cohort behind us as well. There's a, there's alumni now, which is which was fantastic. So there's a network of support. So it's it's really helpful being a part of the public practice and not just you know not just kind of like diving in kind of two feet on my own. I mean, I realize you've only been there six months, but what's in the pipeline that you consider a, a, a big success? We're, we're looking at kind of gathering data on a kind of GM portfolio wide estate. And, that, and it being live data as well. So bringing in kind of the live meter readings, understanding energy performances of the existing portfolio across GM, but at the same time, understanding more than that. So understanding building conditions, understanding you know, what's there in terms of energy systems, what the age of those energy systems are, what's the fabric performance of that, and also get a kind of a greater understanding of kind of where we are as, as, a, as a baseline. The idea from there is that, that we can then put a lens on, on the data that we're receiving. We can then focus on okay where we can make the the biggest changes, where we can get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of kind of decarbonisation. So I think this kind of introspective look on what we have done so far, what we have in terms of a portfolio, 
will really then kind of set us in a good position to really push forward and and do that at, at pace scale and be be effective in what we're doing with our decarbonisation. Well, that's music close to my heart. I've been banging on about uh, evidence-based design and monitoring for years and years and years. But, you know, you can very rapidly have a massive amount of data. So someone has to be yeah. able to, to understand it. Absolutely. And it's difficult. It's difficult getting data through. There's, there's a lot of hurdles. But, you and know, getting we're, we're... accurate accurate and making absolutely. sure the information is accurate. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we know we're doing that. We're, we're working through that now. And we're, we're, we're trying to, with others, working ways to kind of, well, first to get the data, then, then make sure that it's accurate so that it's cleaned and then interpret the data. So it's, it's very much a kind of, will be a focus of my work in the next, the next year or so. Well, in this context of what you're doing, I would really urge you to listen to episode 41 and our listeners as well with Anne-Marie Fallon of Archetype, because she's recently led on a very similar project in Edinburgh. And they've come up with a whole methodology f- for decarbonizing the city's public estate. And, you know, I think knowledge sharing in this space can save so much uh, reinventing the wheel. What's the balance between fabric first measures and low carbon kit like heat pumpification in public buildings? What do you think is the answer? Yeah, I mean, you know, we always encourage a kind of whole building approach. A, A lot of match funding is needed to be required for the kind of decarbonization. So much so that we're looking at circa one million pounds for one project and for local authorities that's that's blown the whole uh, maintenance program it just makes it unviable and, and that in some ways that's kind of where the kind of the school solar program kind of came from and, uh, and looking at different models so looking at the likes of bringing solar in earlier so that schools and local authorities can capitalize and benefit from the energy savings and that money can then be reinvested um, into perhaps fabric or into kind of roof and so, and 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 suppose overlay with the with the maintenance programs, um, whereas normally you know we're looking at a kind of fabric first type type approach, but sometimes that's not viable. So we, we try to be quite agile in terms of how we approach the, the decarbonisation measure, measures. I don't often send my my guests to listen to other episodes, <laughs> but we also have a, a another episode that might be really relevant to you as a episode seven i don't know if you've come across harry patticus he's doing a lot of work on low carbon retrofit of primary schools in uh, south london in lewisham and i don't know specifically if he's working on solar i know he is very big on fabric measures but just have a listen because he's he's really given a lot of thought to this whole whole oh, lovely. issue we'll do. I want to ask you more about uh, public practice i believe you meet as a group on alternate fridays during the is it a six-month period that you go through the, the, the program uh, with invited speakers and share your yep. learnings and your challenges? What have been your main takeaways from these Friday sessions? It's absolutely fascinating going to all the different authorities. I've had the benefit of going down to meet with officers within the City of London. We've also been, we had a great visit to Calderdale. And what's absolutely fascinating is to, is to understand like the nuance between each of these different regions what are the key issues what what um, and what what's happening in the, these the, these different regions and i think what's great as well is that we go and we visit as, as part of a as a cohort and we've all got different day jobs now within within the public sector so we're all coming from different points of view so there's always like a lively debate there's always interesting um, kind of conversations 
and you know really insightful like kind of come away and I'm always really energized off the back of them so you can come back with all these kind of different ideas and thoughts and it's just you know it's, it's a really 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 great vibe Tell us a little bit about your life before public practice. You were at A Studio Architects for over 15 years. What did you do there and what was the sustainability ethos there? Yeah, so I joined A Studio in 2007, graduating from the Bartlett. So, and I was chucked straight into a project lead. You know, this is where really kind of architecture became very real for me. (laughs) So (laughs) it was a building schools for the future program. It was a secondary school. My director, um, Richard Hyams, put a lot of trust in me. And it was a fantastic learning experience. And it, because it, it was contractor-led as well, it was very much a kind of nuts and bolts learning, a kind of building economics learning. I came in at an architect assistant level. I worked through, became an associate to a point of director. So then fast forward a few years, and then I was leading on the Ebury State regeneration in Westminster. Stone's throw from Chelsea Barracks, so high land value, affordable homes. Politically, it was quite, quite contentious. You know, residents were frustrated, but it was an ambitious project. So that gave me a kind of platform to move to, to public practice. But in terms of sustainability, the practice was very much geared towards sustainability. We actually, we employed an engineer within our practice, a lady called Kate Millen, who um, she also works for Etude. The relationship with Kate went kind of way back. Richard, who was... How, um, how the, big is a studio? How many? Um, I think just just under kind of 30 or so architects at the moment. 30, okay, just to have an idea. I think, you know, Richard and Kate worked together way back when they were at Foster's. So they had a history and and Kate came through uh, kind of the inception of A-Studio and was involved heavily from 2007 onwards. Very much we had a kind of sustainability approach involved very much early in design so that passive measures are considered. So, you know, first point is thinking about orientation, aspect, then thinking about kind of form factors, you know, water floors, glazing ratios. Then obviously I was getting into more detail, start thinking about, you know, the specifications, the building makeup, the um, carbon content, through to the detail. So it, it was very much embedded early, bringing those as much kind of those passive, passive measures in early as possible. And then it was also, it was always there as, as a, as a review point, so any design review, sustainability was a, was a topic. It was a subject. So in order to kind of you know ingrain it. That and, sounds and quite quite good and quite rare in my experience of yeah. talking to different practices. So you you had a, a, a sort of strong basis to start from. It, it's just part of the way you think about design. Is what yeah, it I think like. so. Yeah, I think so. And and like I said, I think there was a kind of sustainability element, there's design element, and there's, you know, the economic element as well. So I think all of those have kind of given me a good position. Yeah, so when I lived in Salford, I lived in a block built by Salford City Council's direct labour organisation. So they had a load of housing to build, so set up their own organisation to build it. But after decades of centralisation and neoliberalisation, local government doesn't have the power to address its problems in such a direct way. Greater Manchester has recently wrestled control of its bus services, and so now it's able to take a role in coordinating transport. So for retrofit and sustainable building more generally, what sort of role can local and regional government play? Specific to Greater Manchester, what I'm quite excited about and interested in and, and see how it develops is, is the devolution deal, actually. And I think kind of having these kind of lo- 
kind of more more local power opposed to kind of this centralized London centric type power. It's going to be really interesting to see, you know, how how that plays out in terms of this kind of funding settlement, and I suppose how then local authorities, well, specifically GM, I suppose in this case, are able to then ensure that, that these funds are kind of go in the right direction. I think having these devolution powers will, will really kind of open it up for, for local authorities. I'm really excited to see that how that kind of plays out. So what observations do you have about your move uh, to the public sector more generally? Are there different ways of doing things, would you say? A key one is how damn hard people work. Everybody's pushing. There is a com- common agenda, which is fantastic. I think sometimes there's a bit of a thought that the efforts, you know, aren't as great in in the public sector but that's completely debunked from what I've seen you know everyone's working hard pulling hard in the same direction I suppose one of the kind of the common common things is that there there is more process and there is more process it takes time to 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 kind of act and do things which is which is understandable you know we're dealing with public funds but I think as I said earlier on I, I felt a lot of my skills have just been able to transfer which is really nice I think People skills is, is an essential one. Um, certainly in my role at, at GM, being a part of the kind of the ten, the, you know, the ten ten regions of Greater Manchester, so having those kind of interpersonal skills is is, is absolutely essential. Can you elaborate on that? What do you mean exactly by well, it, well, it's it's understanding where everybody, each person's come from. Every partner has a specific need and specific interest, and we can't just gloss over that. And sometimes we create programmes and perhaps they don't necessarily fit with a certain partner. And that's totally understandable. But we need to kind of consult, we need to speak to them. We need to understand, OK, where we can, where we can support them. I guess that's what I mean by kind of these kind of personal skills is, un, you know, understanding where each, each of the kind of partners are, are coming from and how we can work together to fulfil the needs of each and the, 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 greater, the greater kind of approach to kind of decarbonisation specifically. Well, that leads quite smoothly into my last question, because a lot of our listeners are architects uh, working to different degrees in a variety of roles to tackle climate change. And from the vantage point of your role in Manchester, what advice would you have for design teams? My personal thoughts on this is, is, is around kind of innovation. And I guess me, myself having the benefit of being, you know, being within kind of the teams and being an architect... That's always something that I was really quite excited about, kind of this, this idea and openness to innovation. Of course, that means risk and people need to be aware of risk. But I think in order to incentivize it, it needs to offer value from a financial point of view. Diversification of the, of the design team is, is a good one. And who is a part of that design team? I think engaging early is, is, is a key one as, as part of the project bringing in kind of specialisms early to embed them within the project. So certainly around kind of, you know, green design so that it's embedded within the project. So it's something that's not an add-on to the project that can be value engineered later on. It's an essential part of the project. I'm really delighted to hear this has been positive. Uh, You mentioned that there may be more public practice um, associates recruited to Manchester been fantastic i was looking to be kind of closer to the conversation and to have kind of more strategic involvement and and that's what public practice enabled, enabled me to do to get closer to those conversations to have more involvement and 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 to help shape direction it's an absolute privilege to be involved at kind of the gm level so i'm really excited by the process 
we at GM have been, have been really supportive of, of the of the public practice process and, and have been really happy with it. There's there's been an, a a couple of public practice members that have come, that have come through into GM and we're, we're looking to expand upon that. I'm actually going to be involved in the next round of candidates and, and you know we're hoping to kind of pick up on a few people to come through and join our kind of low carbon team. Great. Thank you very, very much. Our next guest for the final episode of this season will be Andrew Wall of Wall Thistleton Architects. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.architectsjournal.co.uk forward slash podcast, where you can also catch up with all our previous episodes. If you're enjoying Climate Champions, please subscribe and do rate us on your favorite podcast platform. It helps people find us. Thanks.